Welcome to Practically Political. Great to have you with us again. I'm Dave Spencer. And I'm Carrie Sheffield. We've got a very special episode today. Um, there's a lot going on in geopolitics and one of the most preeminent scholars on Russian affairs and uh, just geopolitics. We're so lucky to have her. My good friend who I've known for, gosh, more than 15 years or around 15 years or so. Uh, Maria Snigovaya is here. Um, she's a scholar. She's got her PhD from Columbia University. She has a new book, which I'd love for her to tell us about it maybe at the end. But Maria, we're so glad to have you. And you're an expert on Vladimir Putin. You're an expert on uh, just the former Eastern Bloc uh, USSR. Uh, and then also your current book is about the current state of uh, basically populism that's sweeping across Europe. So welcome, Maria. Thanks a lot for having me, Karen and Dave. Glad to be here. So Maria, why don't you tell us uh, a bit about your reaction? We just heard this news uh, about Alexei Navalny. Tell us what you know about him. And uh, you said earlier that it's to be expected from what we know about Putin. Well, unfortunately, yeah, it's a, it's a horrible day. Uh, one thing that a lot of people were suspecting was going to happen eventually when uh, Navalny got back uh, home, got back to Russia, uh, having been poisoned uh, previously, as we know now, by FSB. Uh, it was a great investigation by Krista Groziva and Navalny team uh, about that. And uh, clearly he was um, serious he was a challenge for the Kremlin, uh, let's put it this way. Uh, the Kremlin wanted to get rid of Navalny, probably in preparation to the war, as it increasingly uh, looks these days. So Navalny gets poisoned in August 2020. Uh, he is, with negotiation of uh, Germany, is sent to Germany from Russia for treatment. He's poisoned with this nerve agent, Novichok, a uh, specially produced chemical that can only be done on using the state-based, state-run facilities. Uh, he recovers miraculously because apparently the FSB uh, agents miscalculated the dosage uh, when they wanted to murder him. And he quite heroically, several several months after, uh, without even uh, being fully recovered, goes back to Russia early uh, in 2021, hoping perhaps that there will be certain protests, certain uh, mobilization of the society, um, perhaps helping him to stay uh, safe, uh, and also obviously probably to he felt morally responsible to dis to support his uh, followers back in Russia who have been arrested uh, since then. And unfortunately, he's jailed again. There are some protests, but they're just very few, sporadic. And uh, since then, he's been kept uh, in jail, uh, increasingly getting more and more uh, sentence terms, um, repeated uh, accusations, charges, which essentially ended up his total uh, jail time up to several decades. But it's quite widely understood, was understood that it whoever dies first, uh, Navalny or Putin. Well, apparently Putin did not want to wait, as we know. Uh, today, uh, he's been murdered. And frankly, the very fact that he survived in jail for three years uh, is already a miracle. Uh, because given what we know about Putin, the Kremlin, how vicious, unforgiving they are, the fact that they already tried to poison Navalny once, uh, certainly, unfortunately, did not leave a lot of hope for him uh, surviving in jail. I want to say particularly um, how amazingly courageous uh, Navalny was. Even, even from jail, he kept sending these extremely, extremely uplifting messages, blog posts. Um, and he certainly is um, a hero in this classic you know, sense. Uh, he did say some wrong things in the past. 
for which he apologized, some xenophobic statements, uh, but he apologized for that and looks like he really did pay uh, the price for maybe perhaps some uh, early mistakes in his career. Uh, most importantly, he did demonstrate a lot of courage and uh, he was in, in, um, um, sort of a symbol for many in the Russian society. With him gone, I think most people will abandon hopes of the so-called beautiful Russia of the future. It's this idea concept that he promoted. And it seems that Russia has fallen uh, deeper and deeper in this totalitarian abyss, back to its horrible uh, past uh, with repressions, uh, murders of political prisoners, and uh, uh, wars of imperial conquest. Gosh, Maria, I'm, again, I'm, I'm so sorry. It's a loss for your country. It's a loss for the world. But I guess what makes me saddest is asking, honestly, are there really going to be any recriminations? Is Putin going to suffer for this? On the world stage, it looks like his economy now is back as strong as it ever was. He survived the, the slowdown in gas and oil sales to Europe. Uh, the ruble has come back. You look at it, you check off every box, and Russia seems to be doing, uh, on, sadly, on many metrics, better than it was before the war two years ago. So what does anything, does this bode for the future? And What's what's going to happen from here? Well, absolutely, uh, Dave. I think the point here is that Putin acts boldly. He's emboldened uh, when he feels uh, quite invincible, uncontained, right, unconstrained. And I think that's uh, the case both uh, with his invasion of Ukraine. There is an ongoing debate within the Russian liberal community. Essentially, what was the reason uh, underlying the uh, war against Ukraine, the new invasion of Ukraine in 2022? Was it because Putin was really afraid for his ratings and he was trying to get rid of the Russian opposition and try start this war in order to uh, unite this country and society around him? Or was it because he was actually feeling quite unconstrained and unchallenged domestically? And that's why uh, he was free, essentially, to act on his imperial ambitions. And frankly, I think that, among other things, Navalny's uh, murder today demonstrates well, alleged murder. We still have not gotten uh, confirmation from his uh, relatives and uh, close ones, but it's likely that uh, it, it didn't, in fact, happen. Uh, but it kind of shows that to confirm uh, the um, second argument that Putin acts bolder when uh, he doesn't feel many obstacles. And indeed, as you pointed out, unfortunately, two years into the war, it's not Russia, uh, it's the West uh, that is divided uh, on Ukraine aid, on the, important, on the importance of support of Ukraine, uh, con- uh, on the importance of uh, continuing uh, fighting this war. Uh, domestically, Russia uh, continuously getting a lot of high oil revenues. As a matter of fact, just as you mentioned, uh, just uh, uh, recently Bloomberg reported that Russia's monthly revenues one year into the oil price cap, which was designed to reduce them, actually are now higher than before uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine in 2022. Um, so much for sanctions from hell. <laughs> Unfortunately, it's not for the lack of trying. I want to give credit uh, to the policymakers in the West. Uh, the problem is that Russia's economy is just too big and Russia's oil uh, energy constitute too large of a share of the market. Accordingly, uh, the sanctions were designed to perhaps try to reduce uh, Russia's revenues. Some would in violation of the basic principles of the market, you know, because the way markets work is that it's hard to uh, decrease the price artificially. Uh, but keeping the Russian oil on the markets, and we see that so far it does not seem to work uh, very well. 
uh, the important thing for us to realize, um, and that was the key takeaway from the Congress briefing, uh, which I gave earlier uh, this um, uh, week in combination with other experts, uh, we need to understand Russia and rethink Russia and the current regime as a long-term challenge to the national security interests of the United States and the West more broadly. Putin is not after a territorial con- conquest of Ukraine. He really wants to challenge the United States, its uh, dominance, its role in the international liberal system as the ultimate arbiter. And uh, really, he wants to destroy the liberal international order. You see that uh, this is the regime without any moral uh, repercussions, any uh, limits. And uh, unfortunately, we need to brace ourselves for a really serious long-term fight, which might as well spread into Western societies if we don't act uh, right now to support Ukraine. Do you think that uh, a big part of why Russia has rebounded and even exceeded before the invasion is because of China? Because it seems like that's where a lot of the the demand is going toward. Uh, and that's, to me, curious in light of the the rivalry that, that those two countries had had for so long. Uh, do you think that this, this, this romance, if you will, between China and Russia is going to be durable because they have a shared enemy in the West? That's my first question. And then second, if I may, uh, can you talk about a little bit, you said that Putin feels emboldened when he sees weakness. Do you think Joe Biden incentivized him through his very haphazard withdrawal of Afghanistan to basically project weakness? Um, And then also his energy policy. Do you think not only Biden's, but the West and Germany and, and the heavy reliance on Russia for energy and then um, Biden restricting energy funds development. Do you think in some ways that kind of incentivized or emboldened Putin even more? Uh, both questions are excellent. Uh, many thanks, Kerry. So certainly, uh, Russia-China. Uh, we are, unlike the situation when Nixon goes to China during the Cold War, uh, when the United States has been very successful in like decoupling, if you will, China <laughs> from the Soviet Union, I'm sorry. Uh, we right now really see these two uh, main uh, geopolitical uh, challengers of the United States, of the international liberal order, combined. And certainly uh, China's factor plays a huge role um, in uh, this war. China, by the way, is very careful not to violate sanctions directly, at least in the open. Uh, There might be something going behind uh, the curtains. But on the surface, they mostly provide uh, dual goods and uh, other uh, types of goods uh, that are uh, that are now no longer available for Russians because of the Western uh, sanctions, like everything, you name it, right? The car industry, for example, is almost entirely now dominated by uh, Chinese vehicles. Uh, but it gets more than that. Semiconductors and chips in particular are mostly imported uh, from China now. Either uh, China, Chinese company either serve as intermediaries or uh, just directly produce uh, those components that Russia needs. Uh, just to give you some numbers, uh, these uh, shipments from China are up 64% from uh, 2021 to 2023. And in general, Russia's uh, trade with China right now has reached uh, a record $240 billion. This is the, um, it's faster actually than even uh, they projected themselves. I think Putin boasted, I think, about uh, this during his interview with Tucker Carlson. Uh, so in general, yes, China plays a huge role. Having said that, it goes beyond China. There are other countries, North Korea helping with artillery uh, munition, artillery shells munition. There's Iran with Shahed drones, also potentially also missiles and more. Uh, there's other countries of the global south or the so-called global south where, again, uh, this just the sanction circumvention 
creates a lot of lucrative opportunities for multiple states across the world. And uh, we seem to have failed in the West to sell uh, this war to these other countries as being quite existential for this liberal order. I mean, they don't probably see themselves as being on the losing side if this international liberal order does not exist anymore. Uh, and as you have seen over the last year already, we have seen the crumbling of this order with more and more conflicts emerging worldwide. I think it's like one of the gloomiest moments uh, over the last decades in terms of the number of proliferation of the conflicts. That is, of course, Gaza and Israel. There is uh, Nagorno-Karabakh situation between Azerbaijan and Armenia. There is now part of possibility of escalation between Venezuela and Guyana. You name it. Of course, there is China-Taiwan issues going forward. Uh, and unfortunately, with this situation, uh, things can escalate real fast because essentially there is spread in perception that the West, as this enforce of the rules, is not very successful anymore. So it re- really does look as very as a very unpleasant moment uh, these days. Uh, to your point, on the uh, role of the administration, uh, I think certainly uh, Putin acts when uh, he sees uh, weakness and Afghanistan judging by the withdrawal from Afghanistan, the really ugly picture that it provided, did uh, find its reflection in the comments and statements by the Kremlin or associated uh, mouthpieces, uh, where indeed they, they've seen it as, again, uh, as, a sense, as a sign that essentially the United States were not really in control of things anymore. Obviously, there were some failures in Intel or certain ex- prediction to predict how bad uh, this whole withdrawal will un- unravel. Having said that, uh, there are reasons to believe that the war in Ukraine was itself conceived of earlier uh, than that. And if anything, now there is like it's kind of it's a it's a murky uh, conversation as to when exactly Putin decided to start this war. But uh, for example, his article. Um, about um, this historical unity between Russia and Ukraine, that will be summer uh, 2021, when in which he points out that uh, he really he it, he has no other choice but to essentially do something about the situation. Ukraine has become an anti-Russia. It also echoes a lot of the points that he has made earlier. So in some ways, Afghanistan could have been a trigger, but it could not probably have been a decisive. Uh, factor in that whole uh, situation. On the energy policy, um, yes, we do see a lot of uh, uh, going back and forth uh, between uh, the um, uh, uh, different Western governments. Europe was a little bit like Europe in some ways deserves a lot of credit of being able to decouple itself with Russia oil, switch to alternative um, suppliers. But at the same time, it did take a year. And for a one year in 2022, Russia has been receiving unprecedented oil revenues, completely unprecedented, which helped it recover the, for example, the central, this, the amount of the central bank reserves, which were frozen by the West at the start of the war, right? So much for the sanctions uh, policies and effectiveness. Uh, however, it does appear specifically to, when it comes to the democratic administration that there is a lot of cautiousness and conflict between the energy policy, where actually want to push the oil prices lower to decrease Russia's energy revenues, uh, with the climate change agenda, right? When you don't want to kind of invest too much in, say, fracking, because hopefully there will be some green energy transition and whatnot. Uh, beyond that, unfortunately, what we consistently see, and this is true for both parties, Democrats and Republicans, that the war has not really been internalized uh, by uh, the uh, U.S. establishment, meaning that this is just a war 
uh, that a different country, Ukraine is fighting of like somewhere in Eastern Europe, right? For God knows what reason. And as Putin has explained again in his Daryl Carlson interview, for reasons that started a thousand of years ago, all these weird names and whatnot. So it's not the war that is uh, highly important and existential for the United States in the context of the survival uh, and defense of the international legal order. And that is why we consistently see the partisan consideration on the side of both parties but Republican Party in particular lately, uh, trumping uh, the uh, this other, the consideration of supporting Ukraine. And unfortunately, what we have seen with the situation with Ukraine aid uh, package in Congress recently, there was an effort to pass it since October. And until now, it still has not been passed. Uh, right now, it's being held off by the speakers, we know. Uh, and uh, uh, Ukraine is losing as a result, literally. It's like it's a matter of uh, literally hours uh, right now at this point, because Ukraine already is losing an Avdivka. They have to ration their ammunition. They, in some instances, Russia shots about 10, uh, t- 10 times. Um, it has essentially it dominates by 10 times, or at least well, five times, the artillery that is currently at disposal of Ukraine. So we are literally talking about something that's unraveling now, and yet uh, the, the partisan fighting still dominates in D.C. So unfortunately, it does not just seem that uh, the U.S. politicians have awakened to the seriousness of what is really happening in the world. Well, you know, one thing I wanted to ask you about, and you mentioned Tucker Carlson, and Tucker Carlson also, the last time he went internationally, was to interview Viktor Orban, the strongman in Hungary. And you literally have, obviously, Donald Trump, who couldn't be fairly labeled as Putin's puppet. He's never criticized him. Many people say the reason that the war started was not because of uh, Afghanistan's botched withdrawal or Trump's negotiating the surrender, which started the whole thing in Afghanistan, but the fact that Trump was going to dismantle NATO. And that's obviously Putin's number one goal. So when that wasn't going to happen, well, then he had to launch the war. And And let's just say, okay, the war has been catastrophic. Russia had the reputation of having one of the world's great armies. It's been laid to waste by a bunch of people that they thought were going to be rebels and would fall in a few days. They remember they were going to march into Kiev in three days. So my long-winded question is simply, what explains this rights, not just support, but sometimes idolatry of, of, of Putin. And, you know, it's, and it's not just Trump. Obviously he's, he's done cringeworthy, cringeworthy things like say that he took his own, he took Putin's word over his own intelligence agencies. And, you know, if, if, Putin, if, if, if a company, if a country in NATO didn't pay their bills, that he would say, not only would I not defend you, but have at it, which, by the way, is ironic from the all time chronic non bill payer in the history of American business. So the, let's cherish the irony there. But what and there are several Republican senators. I'm not even going to mention the dimwits names who are coming out in support of Putin. What is the deal here? There's there are a lot of theories, but I'd love to hear yours for this Republican, almost idolatry in some cases of Putin. I have to say many Eastern European, right, uh, uh, cherish the legacy of Reaganism, right? For many Eastern Europeans, uh, uh, many of us who come from the region, they do cherish this, uh, you know, the image of the strong United States uh, capable to act on, uh, you know, in defense of the liberal values against these uh, dictators. And it's really particularly sad to watch this situation unraveling on the Republican side of the spectrum precisely for uh, that very uh, legacy. 
um, of the Cold War and successful victory against uh, dictatorship uh, that is represented by um, Reagan. Uh, but this is actually uh, takes us closer to my recent book, which also covers uh, the rise of populism uh, in the post-communist world. And uh, uh, this is essentially the movement, as I argue, that partly demonstrate the frustration with the status quo, the way it's been shaped in the liberal democracies in this age of globalization. There's just too many losers, unfortunately, primarily found among the working class uh, electorates um, uh, who found themselves on the losing side of globalization, immigration. They don't feel like they are the ones to whom the establishment caters. And I think Trump uh, sort of inadvertently, somewhat ironically, as you said, because of who he is, actually, has become a voice uh, for many of these groups. Right. It's not as by an accident that, say, say we have seen uh, stronger support for Trump in Rust Belt regions and more economically stagnating regions, and that his agenda has emphasized the role of the jobs, return jobs, make more jobs, and also ending transatlantic alliances and disagreements, because ultimately these constituencies view transatlanticism as one of these essentially foundational uh, uh, elements of this new globalized order, which emerged of which they find themselves uh, being as losers, right? Uh, so this is broadly speaking, and to sum it up uh, quickly, accordingly, uh, this uh, in post-communist Europe also because marketization, the adoption of market reforms, happened simultaneously with uh, political reforms and democratization. They now confuse, um, uh, the societies confuse political liberalism and economic liberalism. So they blame the economic misfortunes, uh, partly associated to market reforms, to democracy. And it's therefore much easier for actors like Viktor Orban to justify this illiberal democracy by and rejection of many important tenets of political liberalism by blaming uh, blaming economic reforms and economic liberalism. Uh, one of the possible solutions, certainly, uh, perhaps introducing more social protection uh, to these groups, and I think there are ways to explore this, because uh, unfortunately, this situation will probably reinf be reinforced by uh, transformation, uh, introduction of new technologies, and more people essentially finding themselves uh, uh, with declining social status and declining economic status as well. Uh, so to me, at least, perhaps it's somewhat of a simplistic uh, explanation, but it does account at least for part of the story. And uh, yes, uh, therefore, these groups, populist right parties that spread across all of um, Europe, in the United States and beyond, they are quite uh, anti um, are towards against globalization, against this uh, transatlantic um, commitments and whatnot. Uh, having said that, uh, there were a number of studies run by scholars in the United States and the good news for Republican constituencies is, first of all, uh, in general, nobody likes Putin. It's not like somebody wants to be friends with Putin, uh, maybe apart from Donald Trump, <laughs> although even he's not very open about it, right? Most Republican constituencies do understand that Russia is a challenge. They just don't want it to invest, invest too much in countering that challenge. They don't think it's their problem to do that. But... Uh, there are ways to explain it and to communicate it to them, uh, showing that, first of all, it is the problem uh, of ev it's everybody's problem, right? Because uh, Russia, failure to contain Russia in power is China. China still remains high on the Republican agenda. Uh, there's, they're also quite uh, sensitive to the information about persecution of, say, evangelical Christians uh, that Russia uh, uh, continuously does on occupied territories of Ukraine and all these tortures and rapes. Uh, so there's a lot of people who are open and sensitive uh, to that information, and they're more likely to support uh, 
aid uh, to Ukraine. It perhaps may be better to frame uh, this war as the war against Putin, rather, in support of Ukraine, precisely because of how big the challenge is. Uh, lastly, I will say that it's also did not and it's not well understood that most of the money uh, that the United States offers to Ukraine, they, the money stays in the United States and it is reinvested in the U.S. defense industry, which then creates more jobs for these very constituencies. So ultimately, it may be beneficial for everybody. Ultimately, it is about the future, the future world in which our kids are going to be living. And let's try to work together to create a better future for them. Thank well, you. I'll just say one thing and I'll, I'll give Carrie the last word. I She's heard me say many times that whatever you think of Donald Trump, he is the symptom in this country, not the problem. And populism is what caused Donald Trump and inequality is what's caused populism. And the inequality in this country is the greatest it's been since the Gilded Twenties. And back then, if you look, we had a, same, a lot of the same anti-immigrant zealotry uh, that we're having now, the difference was back then we actually passed policies to mitigate the problem in terms of creating an income tax and social security and banking regulations and all this stuff. Now we have policies that are exacerbating it. And so it's a very tough situation politically. But I, I do believe that uh, in the end, I hope people will, re will realize that it's going to cost us a lot more if Putin succeeds in Ukraine. And then we have to defend, under Article 5 of NATO, one of the Baltic states or Poland. Exactly. So I could not hopefully agree we will get our act together and get the money because we haven't lost a single American soldier and we've humiliated one of the great, supposed great powers. So I think it's been money well spent. But as I said, right. Carrie, I'll give you the last word. Yeah, well, we got to run. But real quick, Maria, can you just give us the full title of your book so people can look that up if they want? Oh, thank you very much. Uh, it's called When Left uh, Moves Right, uh, The Rise, the Decline of the Left Parties and the Right of the Populist, uh, the rise, and the Rise of the Populist Right Parties in Hong Kong East Europe. Yep. So when left moves right. That's when I do draw a lot of parallels between post-communist Europe and Western Europe. And so a lot of uh, the readers will find a lot of parallels between what is happening in the United States as well. Yep. And it was published by Oxford Press. So, you know, she's smart. So, Maria, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. Maria, it's been great having you. We'll definitely have you back. Uh, again, my my thoughts and prayers are with you and your fellow Russians over the loss of the tender age of 47 of one of your great patriots. Thank you.